Welcome, everybody. Another episode of Decoding Academia, where Chris and I, at the moment anyway, are taking turns in picking research articles that we enjoy and talking about it. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see that Chris has a very nice stack of academic-y books behind him. There's nothing behind me because um, my brother's um, at his house at the moment. He only has one working USB port, which is being used for my microphone, so I cannot use the keyboard no, to no, search for an image. It's because the real, the real knowledge is all up there. You don't uh, need any Zoom background. It's yeah. You know, there's no virtue signaling for you, Chris. Mm -hmm. What what have you got for us today? You've got something. I've got something more up to date after your ancient publication from the 1980s. <laughs> I'm taking us back just 10 years ago, a decade ago now, though, to 2011, and a paper that has proved extremely influential, cited thousands of times, called False Positive Psychology. Undisclosed <laughs> flexibility in data collection and analysis allows presenting anything as significant by Joseph Simmons, Leif Nelson, and Uri Simonson. Simonson. Now, Chris, we had a bit of confusion about which was the right article for me to read. And if you recall, you did recommended... We? <laughs> we. Yes, we, we, in inverted commas, did, because you told me that there was an article, and you gave me the rough title, and you told me the author was Ionidus. Oh, yeah, right. And so right. I, I read a book called, uh, I read an article called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, very similar to what you said, by John Ionidus. And in fact... The article that you're recommending isn't by Odanis, it's by Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson. So that would explain why I read the wrong article, Chris. I, I, just, I just realized that as well. Well, they're very similar. They're very similar in tone. And I, I am this, the, uh, so what was the title of his one? Why most research findings are wrong, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. So, I mean, the two are very interlinked and often get cited together, but the cautionary tale that we will be unable to focus on because he's not an author is that Iandis has become something of a COVID contrarian, or at least he, he's been arguing that the virus is not as bad as is popularly made out. And he's published various studies to make that argument. And he's generally regarded as being very bad in the current, in the coronavirus era and to be engaging in many of the things that he was previously warning people about mm. Um, mm. In, in the selective way that he analyzes data and, and so on. So he's a cautionary tale, but That's he's not an author yeah. of this paper. He's not an author so, in the end. Yeah, I wonder, yeah, so the confusion, once again, Chris, I have to apologize because, you know, yeah, you I should. got so confused. That's I right. read the wrong article. He, you know, he could That's say all right, why. but you know this article. You've seen this article. This is a classic of the genre. And mm. for me, the reason this article is, I, I often assign this to the first year students that I'm teaching about methods or that kind of thing, because I think it is a very nice introduction to a lot of the issues that are central to the replication crisis. And it also gives a practical uh, demonstration of how they could be applied into like presenting the results of papers uh, uh, by mm. giving these kind of two fake experiments, but we'll get into them. So mm. uh, what about you, Matt? Do you, do you have anything general about this paper? Uh, general comments to begin with. 
many people listening would be familiar with the replication crisis, which particularly affected uh, experimental social psychology, but arguably affects a lot of areas in psychology and the social sciences generally. So the other bit of background knowledge for people is that, you know, in a prototypical experimental study, there will be sort of a hypothesis, uh, a research methodology, some sort of experimental survey, some sort of measures are selected, some procedures are done, participants are recruited and uh, measures are made. And then the data is subjected to some statistical analysis. And most people would have heard of p-values. This is, I, I always get this wrong. I shouldn't get it wrong. <laughs> the correct definition of what a p-value actually oh, is. Good luck. But yeah, I'm not going to try it. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, <laughs> I'm so upset. Long, yeah, yeah, that's, that's stupid, the, the definition of it. So, but look, long story short, p-values get used by researchers to determine whether or not a finding would be unlikely to have happened by chance. And they often choose a threshold of p as less than or equal to 0.05. So that would be corresponding to a 5% probability that the statistic would be observed, assuming the null hypothesis. If they get something smaller than that, then they reject the null hypothesis, they accept the alternative hypothesis and back, you know, Bob's your uncle, you can go ahead, write the paper up and get some citations. Yeah. So Chris, you want to take us through it a bit more or some yeah. more comments from you? So the, the, the concern is like an acceptable rate for false positives, right? If you're getting it, I like the analogies that compare, like getting a cancer diagnosis, right? If it, we wouldn't accept the 5% error rate on, in a cancer diagnosis usually because the results are are quite impactful for people who receive them, but, um, mm. for all the things. So the error rate that you'll accept on a given test, it should be variable, but in a lot of social sci sciences, a general rule of a 5% error, one in 20 error is applied and P values are like you say, there's a lot of, uh, nuance in the specific way you describe them or whatever, but the, another feature about them, which is important that is that they are the, the probability over time, right? So you can trust P values to give you the kind of correct answer. If you are applying them over time, any individual P value should be treated with some suspicion, right? Because just the way the probabilities work, but in any case, it isn't all about P values, this paper, there's plenty of papers, which are about P values. What this paper is primarily about is a separate construct, which is equally as influential to psychology, but not so commonly known. And it, they describe it as researcher degrees of freedom. And it essentially means the choices that people make in the course of collecting or analyzing the data, reporting data that can be reported or are not reported. So it's all the choices that researchers make, like how big will the sample size be? What kind of measures will I use? What kind of statistical test will I use? What results will I report in the end paper? Which things will I not mention in the end paper? Which journal will I target it for? So on and so forth. All of these hundreds of decisions that go into research that, uh, and each one has multiple choices attached to it. So these are the degrees of freedom that you have. And mm -hmm. this paper is saying, 
why we need to pay more attention and take steps to try and control them or be more transparent about what they are. Yeah, so it's, it's not necessarily like it's a technical topic, but it's one that's near and dear to the heart of practicing scientists and researchers because everybody wants the research literature to be true. This is the ideal that everything that is published reflects a true kind of finding. Now, the problem is that when you collect data, there's just, there's inherent randomness involved of various kinds. So you don't get absolute true or, or not true evidence. What you get is some sort of measure of certainty. So, you know, as you said, by convention in the social sciences, they've tended towards just setting this, this, this P value, this probability that the finding is, is, or, or the truth is, is there is no difference or no relationship when actual fact there is one. I've set this arbitrary threshold of 0.05. And if it crosses that, then are taken as like a, well, okay, this is probably true. It's, it's at least the probability of it being true is high enough that we're happy for this to be published and for it to enter the literature. So that's all very well and good, unless somebody has their, their finger on the tiller. So that's yeah. what this is about. So one of the examples they give to illustrate like researcher degrees of freedoms is they talk about excluding participants, right? You run a study and you've got your data and then you might think, well, some of these results are pretty crappy. The, the data is low quality. So how do we remove the bad quality responses? And they point out that when they looked at 30 articles in psych science, they had a whole bunch of different reasons for excluding participants and particular, they were focused on like time, right? The time it takes to complete a task. And they were saying that people apply different standards. Some people apply the fastest 2.5 or fastest 5% and remove them. Other people take like a certain amount of standard deviation from the mean as a signal. Other people using a whole variety of different criteria, right? But there's no standardized set criteria. And that if the researchers decided this in advance or for some particular reason, it, it could be useful, but or it can be fine, but it could also be the case that willingly or knowingly or unknowingly that they are selecting cutoff points that enable them to remove results that are inconvenient or that mm -hmm. help push things towards significance. And when there's such an incentive, when you're more likely to get a paper published, the results are more interesting. Whenever you find this, mm. a result that is statistically significant, this can add up, right? These little decisions that you make to push things in one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. So to take this example, as you said, th there isn't an obvious standard rule that should be applied and it's probably okay for multiple rules to be applied. I think the real issue here is whether it's post hoc or a priori, right? So. This is something I'm sure we'll talk about more, but when you talk about these researcher degrees of freedom, so there's all these decision points, as you said, and they're kind of fuzzy. It's kind of arguable. Should it be, should you, you know, reject these responses because they took much longer than most other participants? Should you reject it if they sped through it and they, they completed it in the top percentile or whatever, or do you set some number in milliseconds? You know, you could argue for any of those decisions and it's arguably, again, not a problem for you to choose any of those choices, but the issue is, is whether you make that decision before you look at the data and start 
you know, having a play with it and, and doing some statistical analyses or a priori, or whether or not you analyze your data, you might find your results are kind of, you know, they're kind of maybe in the right direction, but not really significant. And then you might go back and revisit some of those decisions to, in scare quotes, improve <laughs> the quality of your data set. Yeah. And you stop fiddling when uh, you get the result that you're looking for. Yeah. And so they give a nice demonstration. This is one of the reasons I really like this paper. So they do, they report two studies that they actually ran. So study one is called musical contrast and subjective age. And they, they get 30 participants and they randomly assign them to listen to Kalimba by Mr. Scruff, which came with Windows 7 operating system. So this dates it. Or a children's song, Hot Potato, performed by the band that Matt often recommends the wiggles. So a right. kind of children's right. song mm -hmm. or an, a more adult. <laughs> uh, you know, adults Scruff. can listen to it. Adults can listen to the wiggles. Say Chris, just saying, that's fine. Yes. And they, for everybody. they then report how old they feel right now after listening to the music and people feel older after listening hot potato than listening to the control song. Right. And it's. P equals 0.03 is the relevant P value. And then they, but that's the prelude to study two, when they say we, we decide to conceptually replicate and extend these findings. And we look whether listening to songs, uh, about older age actually makes people younger, physically younger. So they <laughs> use the same method with 20 stu undergraduate students. They listen to Kalimba again by Mr. Scruff or when I'm 64 by the Beatles. And then they indicate their, their birth date and their father's age. And they find that as predicted, according to birth dates, people were a year and a half younger on average after listening to when I'm 64 than they were with Kalimba. P equals 0.04. So they say the studies were conducted with real participants employed legitimate statistical analyses and are reported truthfully. Nevertheless, they seem to support hypotheses that are unlikely, study one, or necessarily false, study two. And the, how yep. they did this is by exercising researcher degrees of freedom. So do you yep. want to explain what kind of things they did, Matt? We don't have to cover it all, but how could they make these results without uh, actually uh, mm. finding these interesting findings well before i do let's just be super explicit here they, they purportedly found that listening to one of these songs made people physically younger as per their self-reported age right so one people in one condition were actually found them to be of younger age than the people that, that had listened to those songs. this is of course logically impossible there is no way for listening to a song to make you physically younger whereas as they say, they did legitimate statistics. They didn't lie in anything that they reported. And yet they found F brackets 117 equals 4.92. That's an F statistic. And they reported P equals 0.04, which is just below the 0.05 threshold of significance. So it's obviously uh, dodgy, can't be, can't be right. So how did they accomplish that? Well, th there's a few things you can notice about this. One thing is they've got relatively few participants i've only mm -hmm. got 20 right so i think it's 10 in each condition is that right uh i guess so i'm not yeah. sure the conditions but, but probably around that 
that's going to make their means bounce around a little bit more. It's not going to make it more significant if you like, but it maybe gives a little bit more wriggle room. But then really what the, the main thing that's pushing it in the direction of significance is the stuff that they don't say. So even though they didn't lie, they made a lot of little decisions, these researcher degrees of freedom along the way in order to bring those levels down. So for instance, they measured multiple dependent variables. So the dependent variables, the thing that you're expecting is going to change the uh, as a result of the, the outcome, which is age. Um, so that they report age, but they measured other things, didn't they, Chris? What else did they measure? Uh, how old they felt, how much they would enjoy eating at dinner, the square root of 100, their agreement with the statement, computers are complicated machine, their mother's age, their father's age, whether they would take advantage of an early bird special, their political orientation, which of four Canadian quarterbacks they believed won an award, how often they refer to the past as the good old days and their gender. Yep. <laughs> so, so, so they measured a bunch of things and, and they could uh, presumably tested, ran their statistical test on all of these outcomes. So with every one of those statistical tests, they're getting another shot of that p-value, which assuming the null hypothesis is true, there's no effect, which, which is a pretty safe assumption here. They're going to have a 5% chance every time of having that p-value land under that magical threshold. Yeah. And so the. The other thing that they did was, and they detailed this in a table, they include in, in gray text, all of the information that they left out, right? And if you put it back in, it looks very different. So that's how I read off all those com uh, alternative variables, which they don't mention in the results. They also drop 14 participants and because they had a, a separate condition with a different song. So hot potato by the wiggles. So if they had to find that the people were younger in that condition, they could have taken that or so on. And um, another thing that they do is they conduct the analysis after every experimental session of approximately 10 participants, they say they did not decide in advance when to determine. So they're basically checking when things reach statistical significance, and then they're going to choose the cutoff point, right? Instead of. Mm collecting all the data and analyzing it at the end. So there's, there's various things that they're doing behind the scenes and they don't lie about any of it. They just don't report it. And of course, this is an extreme version where they're trying to reach an outcome that is on the face of it ridiculous. But the point that they want to make is a broader one that you can have this exact same circumstance in the legitimate study where people don't report variables, which maybe they say, well, these, these weren't, you know, they didn't really have an impact on our results, so we don't need to report them. And maybe they drop out some participants like we talked about for quality control or because some condition didn't really work. And the issue is if you drop out all that information, it can make your story read more smoothly, be more persuasive, but you're taking all this information away from the reader of your article. So instead mm. of learning that you did 20 statistical tests and one of them reached significance, which would be a lot less impressive, you're only given the information of one statistical test and, and yep. that's important. Um, yep. Yeah. And, and just for completeness, I think there was one other research degree of freedom there, which was the decision whether or not to include a covariate in their analysis. So 
they they ended up controlling for father's age. And but not Malu's age or not but, um, any of the other things. Yes. Yeah. So you can imagine if you measured a whole bunch of other potential independent variables, demographics or whatever, you could try putting some in, taking some out, all these different permutations, each of which would sort of give you another shot at finding a p-value below 0.05. So it's just an illustration, but that illustrates that when you do exercise those researcher degrees of freedom, then it's not that hard to find a spurious, significant effect. And I think one of the morals of the story here, of course, is that people really need to not do this emission thing. Because as you say, it'd be far less convincing. In fact, it'd be totally unconvincing. It wouldn't get published in the first place if, if they had uh, reported all of those degrees of freedom. And this is, this is why there's a push like with open science moves or in the wake of the replication crisis to make research more transparent and to provide the information of what you're going to record in advance or to make all of the data available online for other people to see because it, it, it prevents or it kind of ties your hands to a certain extent to present things in a misleading way, the more transparent you are. doesn't prevent you from creating results and producing them, but just means that people can put them in more context. And that mm. on its own, I think would be a good contribution of this paper, like a nice little simple illustration. And I often assign the text of these two studies to undergraduates and ask them to try and identify methodological issues and then provide them the table with the researcher degrees of freedom. So it's a nice little exercise that you can show people to be skeptical mm. of research findings. But they also add in this neat simulation study where they, they conduct simulations that uh, vary the four things which they say are crucial in researcher degrees of freedom. So choosing among dependent variables, as we discussed, choosing sample size, using covariates and reporting subsets of experimental conditions, right? So these, they label them A, B, C, and D. And they look at if you exercise these on data that is non, uh, that is just random, right? That how mm -hmm. often can you create false positive results at different levels of p-values? And they have like p under 0.1, p under 0.05, and p under 0.01, right? So kind of increasing levels of harshness. And they basically show that in each one, you can increase the chance by between 10 and 20%, uh, depending on the thresholds. But for the normal P under 0.5, each of these individual things like controlling for gender or interaction with gender, you can increase the likelihood to get a significant result by 12%. And if you combine them, if you do multiple versions, once you're adjusting like the dependent variables that you report using selective covariates and adjusting sample size and so on, you get up to 60 or 80%, depending on your thresholds, a chance of getting a false positive result. So they're, they're really saying that like these individual choices, they might move the needle only, you know, 10% or 5%, but if you combine them, you suddenly become more likely than not to get a false positive result. Um, mm, yeah. And this is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it is a problem. Yeah. So look, in the little toy example that's reported in the paper, 
So it's kind of reasonably obvious that what is being done is a little bit shady. And we already know in advance that the result couldn't possibly be true anyway, right? Mm. But it, it, it does apply to the real world because often the statistics that are, and the data sets are much bigger and more complicated. The questions are more complicated. The statistics that are being used are more complicated. So the degrees of freedom are real. And the, the researcher genuinely doesn't know that the finding is true or false. In fact, they, they often have a strong predisposition to believe that, you know, their theory may, may predict that it's, that there is actually an effect there. So they, they strongly expect it to be there. So their bias is probably in that direction. You know, it's a sobering tale because. It, it's not just researchers who are twirling their evil mustaches and, and deliberately fiddling with the books in order to make these false results. Those people probably do exist, but far more common, I would say, is an, an earnest researcher dealing with a complicated design, some complicated statistics, and being genuinely unsure about these questions. Like, oh, you know, sh which cases should I discard? Should I control for this or that? genuinely not being sure and could quite easily, even with the best of intentions, treat the effect that they're looking for as the kind of signal that they're, that they're analyzing it in the right way. Yeah. And that if they're not finding stuff, it's like, oh, gee, especially an inexperienced researcher or a graduate student could think to themselves, well, I've obviously made a mistake here with my analysis. I need to go back and fix yeah. it up. And the senior academics can say, maybe you can reanalyze re it using like look at subsets of data and so on. And there's actually Daryl Bem, an influential social psychologist, provided a like a methodology uh, guidebook for undergraduates. And it, it talked about analyzing data and it, it strongly described like cut your data up, look at it from different angles, add covariates, take them away. What You need to torture your database until it tells you the, the story that, and it might not be the story you started out with. It's, you know, what your data teaches you. And that's mm. like the, the concept of data fishing or fishing for significance is a, you know, like a cautionary tale, but that's exactly what's being described, right? If, mm. if you're just playing around with numbers and you're not testing things in a kind of predetermined manner, humans are pattern seekers. And when we're motivated to get particular answers. When you've got lots of different ways to analyze things, lots of different tools that you can put in to test things, you can find creative results. And this is a big part of why we had the replication crisis because, and it's not individual researchers. There are cases of fraud where people did this or falsified the data, but that's more rare than people engaging in motivated analytical choices. And then getting the results to a level that they're ready to publish in a paper. And there are all the incentives geared towards that the students did not create or the researchers did not create to do that. Journals would yeah. not accept null results. People were unhappy with negative findings. So there, it wasn't just individuals making bad choices. It's that the, the kind of incentive structure, especially around journal publications, incentivized positive, splashy, counterintuitive results. And so what you got was a load of results that were created via these kind of methods and that simply cannot hold up to rigorous replication because once you do quite strict tests and, and don't engage in those, the results don't appear again, right? 
Yeah, as you say, the underlying issue here is the incentive um, system that is at play. And yeah, the individuals involved didn't create it. It's very understandable for journals and the community generally to be more interested in new, exciting findings, something different, not just, oh, we did this carefully constructed experiment and we didn't, didn't, we didn't find anything. It didn't work. It can work, it, even that's a point that my framing of that is wrong, right? Because it didn't yes. work implies it should have yeah. worked. But. And, and in, in fact, I was going to mention the same thing, which is that I've often caught graduate students that I've supervised using the same language, which is that, it, oh, it, it didn't work. In other words, I failed, right? This, yeah. this, this research that I tried to do was a failure. And it's just the, really the wrong framing. We have to try to learn a different framing. The other thing too is that it is the incentives for the individual researchers, especially junior researchers. The job market, it, it's difficult perish. to publish or perish. Everyone knows it's difficult to establish yourself in academia. And for graduate students or early career researchers these days, the pressures are intense. And you'll have this advice given to you, which is that, you know, you need to publish, you know, get at least four or five papers published by this amount of time. And then you'll have a chance at getting this kind of fellowship or this scholarship yeah. and so on. And there's this great filter going on where, where people are filtered out un unless they meet those thresholds. So the pressure on them is intense. And also a supervisor, a more established academic who might be advising one of these people, they obviously want the best for them. They could quite naturally in a meeting say, oh, I see. Okay. was not significant. Hey, well, did you try doing it this way? Or yeah. are you sure you that was the right decision? And it can all be done with the best of intentions and it can lead to the problem that we're talking about. I can also say that it's not always, it's like often the senior researchers are the ones that want the positive result more than the graduate students or so on, because there's a becoming an increasing generational divide where the younger researchers are okay with null results, okay with open science practices. And the people that are more hesitant are the more established researchers who often have their own theories that they want to protect. And Matt, one thing I want to point out here is all of this might sound in a way similar to the critique of some of the gurus that they raise about academia, right? That it's this rigged system, that the incentive structure is there not to produce truth, but to create jobs, right? And, and to like silence people who are producing inconvenient results. But the difference that I want to make here, or the, the, the contrast I want to highlight, and it relates to this paper as well, is first of all, that despite of all these flaws, which people acknowledge, like this paper is getting published in academia, right? Because people want to self-correct. And this is not the first time these issues have been raised. They're, they're right. known about and there are steps taken to address it. And even though there are all these skewed incentives, because science is self-correcting, because people try to replicate things and so on, it, the yeah. literature does detect them. And similarly, as we'll get into, I think, at the tail end of this paper, this paper has suggestions for how to resolve the issue, recommendations mm -hmm. for uh, researchers about what to do. Mm -hmm. And they're practical. They have been started to be implemented across academia and various social science fields and they're producing effects. And it's, it's this pragmatic approach of recognizing humans' limitations, including researchers' limitations and all the incentives and trying to devise systems that address it. But they're not about these self-aggrandizing takes where the researchers are talking mm -hmm. about how they're much better than everyone else. No, 
they're giving a set of suggestions about how things can yeah. improve yeah. and not being unrealistic about it. So this is why the gurus are so infuriating in some respect, because they, they're taking away the ability to discuss this topic with nuance and just tying it to all this culture war nonsense. And it isn't like there's no issues with academia or no one's talking about it. It's just that like this kind of stuff, it doesn't interest them because it's technical. Yeah. It's boring to them because they, that's what they care about. Yeah. I mean, totally agree with that. This might sound superficially similar to the kinds of things they're saying, but it's just not. The gurus wave their hand and make these blanket statements about everything being corrupt. It's not, right? This is a problem, but it's not the only thing that's going on. Not all research fails to replicate. A lot of findings are perfectly fine. Despite these issues with these researcher degrees of freedom, for instance, many researchers, a lot of the time, do pretty well at avoiding most of these pitfalls anyway. Right? Yeah. As you said, Chris, the replication crisis started in social psychology and the people who found it, the people who raised attention to it were psychologists in the field. Yeah. And then the people that are, have been madly going about replicating stuff and checking whether stuff is true, publishing papers like this, establishing open science protocols are people within the discipline. So there's been absolutely no conspiracy of silence, right? This is something well, that, you know, we, we want to fix. Well, I'm speaking too strongly. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, but yeah. There, there are conservative elements which are like critical about it. And there are debates about the tone of criticism and, and various issues, but the, the, the point stands regardless. And I also think that when you say that the replication start, crisis started in social science, you mean like the phenomenon, right? As in it was detected in social yeah. science. And then yes. the, there has been subsequent efforts to look at economics, to look at cancer research and so on. And they find problems. Yeah. They've, they've also found better rates for application in, in some disciplines, which are heartening, but yep. still they find these issues and the same solutions apply. And the yeah. other thing I'll say too, Chris, about this epistemic paradigm of quantitative science, whether it's social science or some other kind of science involving statistics and involving measures involving these kinds of research designs, it lends itself to being checked, right? Yeah. It's possible to, it's a, to check and, and find these things. Now, there are other disciplines, <laughs> which- That will remain nameless. <laughs> <laughs> will remain nameless, that, that you know, can't be checked in this way. So it's just important to get this, to, to get the balance right. I think like, it's obviously a good thing. The replication crisis to be identified, more of these open science protocols and these guidelines being followed to avoid these issues, constraining these research degrees of freedom, a lot of positive things we can do. It's also possible to take it in a kind of puritanical way, a little bit too far. And as, as you sort of hinted at, it's possible to do things like, like imagine taking a graduate student who's published maybe their second or their third article ever, and who has made some methodological mistakes and then naming and shaming them and demanding their articles retract, all that stuff. Like, I don't think there's any need for a kind of a, a pogrom to, <laughs> to, to, to eliminate the undesirable. Yeah, and th these are debates that go on about, you know, the like it, a paper is published and it may have methodological flaws, but not be egregarious. And then is the tone of the people or is the criticism that it attracts fair and, and proportionate? And, and there are legitimate debates to be had there. But I, another point I think that's I'd reference to our gurus 
is that the superficial critique, although there's, there's parallels. One thing is that, and you see this a lot with Brett Weinstein and Heller Hain, for example, that they claim to be skeptical about research, but they're not, right? When they find a paper which fits their priors, they're extremely credulous about it. And what I try to emphasize to my students and basically to everyone is that you should read papers critically. You should be skeptical and you should be asking questions about what information was missing or, or so on, but not just for the papers that you don't like the results of. All papers should be taken as provisional. And this isn't a new thing that I've developed. It's the attitude of science and it's the recommendation of like methodological textbooks from, you know, since they've existed, have made this yeah. point. It's not new knowledge. It's hard yeah. to put into practice. And the gurus here, like Jordan Peterson or whatever, they have no interest in that. All they use papers for is these kind of rhetorical weapons that they can fling across. And the methodological limitations might be of interest if they can undermine a study that they don't like, but they'll never highlight the methodological issues with studies that they like. And this is why this is using research wrong and approaching research wrong. It's using it as a rhetorical weapon instead of a record of a study that was conducted on a finding, right? Instead of seeing yeah. it as a cumulative endeavor. So, yeah. yeah, I was heading in the same direction myself. I mean, the way in which this kind of thing can be weaponized is to have these extraordinarily high standards and then selectively apply them to yeah. whatever studies do not fit whatever your preferred narrative for the, for want of a better word is. And that's the way in which it, it could be, you know, a terrible thing because, you know, no study is perfect. No methodology is perfect. And if you selectively apply extremely high standards, then as you say, it can simply be used as, well, it's just a form of scientism, really using, yeah. using sciencey, like a sciencey critique to make a rhetorical point. Now, as you say, it's hard, right? The, the whole thing is hard. Doing it, doing it well, doing it right is hard, both doing the research and also critiquing the research. And the thing that makes it hard is that people have prejudices, people have preferences, people have desires. And I've always been against sort of, sort of fusing together out what we want and what we desire, what we think would be good and beneficial activism, for want of a better word, with the process of finding out what is. And there's a lot of caveats to be made there, but I, I think it's really important to be dispassionate and the, well, I, the sort of thing you were describing, which is to apply an even-handed threshold, an even-handed standard universally, requires like a level of dispassion and not to have a preference to like mm -hmm. delegitimize this type of research and promote that kind of research. I, I'd add that just one point there, Matt, that I, and I think you'd be completely on board with it, that it's no problem to be passionate and have a preferred uh, result. You have yeah. to be dispassionate in the analysis and the design yeah. of the study. So yeah. you can have what you want to be the case, but to be a good yep. scientist, you have to respect what the data says and not put your thumb on the scale. So you can be an activist, but you can't massage yeah. your data to support your preferred conclusion. Absolutely. So those two roles can coexist in the same person. It could be those two people at different times, but it's like wearing two hats. You know, you have to, you could put on this hat yeah. and you put on that hat, but there's no other way around it. And it's not easy. That's the, the, the point. It's easy to say to be dispassionate, mm. but it's, it's easier said than done. There's a, there's somebody who's kind of terrible online called lead yourself, 
is a social psychologist and uh, uh, also a kind of warrior in the culture wars. But he, he is correct in sometimes when he diagnoses his problems about like methodological issues and he talks about the uneven application of like standards of rigor, right? Across mm-hmm. the, the different topics. And, and that, like, regardless of Lee's broader view, he's completely right about that, that like, it has to be applied consistency or applied consistently, um, in order to be science. And so mm-hmm. Matt, maybe a good thing to move to is to look at what they suggest as the solution, as they put it, simple solution to the problem of positive publications. And they give six points for authors, four points for academic reviewers. Um, so maybe I'll take the authors and you recommendations, and then we can talk about the guidelines for reviewers quickly. So they say authors must decide the rule for terminating data collection before data collection begins, must collect at least 20 observations per cell, must list all variables, collected in the study, must report all experimental conditions, must report what statistical results are if the observations are included and analyses without covariate. So all of those are like, you know, sort of technical in nature, but the fundamental principle is just disclose everything that you do, be transparent and have minimum standards, right? And another important thing, decide things in advance, not on the fly. Yeah, absolutely. So being transparent, the other thing is, as you say, deciding things in advance that a priori versus post hoc decision-making, reporting all the information and not making these sins of omission. Just, but more culturally, like in terms of cultural advice, right? Not, not technical advice. Culturally, the, the advice for researchers and for editors, reviewers is to embrace null results, embrace boring stuff and to make, not perhaps have such a high priority on the results being some flashy, new, exciting, shiny thing, but rather just bedding down and solidifying and giving confidence in the sort of core findings in the field. And, you know, this is probably too much to ask for, but if, if we can move away from the idea, I mean, I don't know, I'd look actually, Chris, I'm going to ask you this, right? Cause I don't, I, I don't think there's an easy solution to this one presently. Um, publications and citations to those publications is the ultimate benchmark by which academics are judged. Um, unfortunately stuff that gets published, stuff that gets cited tends to be shiny, new, exciting, and therefore creates this massive incentive, um, you know, these unhelpful incentives. Yes. I struggle to think of an alternative way to decide which academic to hire for a position or to grant a scholarship for or mm. whatever, how, how do we leave those mm. metrics behind? Well, I don't think we can leave the metrics behind, but I think we can factor in the quality of studies, like as a metric, like, so for example, there can be a famous study, which is badly conducted and is hugely influential. And then a very careful, much larger pre-registered replication effort finds null results and gets much less citations. But I think amongst certain kinds of researchers, and they're increasingly common, the negative replication is valued. It might not be valued in the citation metrics, but I think there's an increasing awareness and there's increasing move from funding bodies to require things like open science protocols be applied for 
grants and stuff. So it's never going to be perfect, but I think there is, at least in all the hiring panels and stuff that I've been on, there's scope for considering other aspects than just the citation metrics. And in most cases, yeah. it hasn't come down to that. Where yeah. I've been, where they're like, is there a paper in psych science or something like that? It's been more, yeah. this person isn't a good fit because yeah. they don't have the right kind of skills or so yeah. on. Yeah, you know, th that's a good point, actually, now I think about it. Like, when, when you think about these citation metrics and flashy papers, I mean, they often yield, like, that's something that often comes into play like 20 years later, like then in your career, you know, um, it's not generally something that sort of, um, grants you entry. Now, as you say, if you're, if you're on a hiring committee, if you're on a scholarship committee, if you're a, a reviewer or an editor, it, it's possible to value different things and you can, it takes a little bit more effort to actually read the papers yeah, <laughs> and I pay know. careful. It takes more work rather than just looking at the Google Scholar citations, but it absolutely can be done. And, you know, as you were speaking, I realized that we do exactly that in my little neck of the woods. So, um, I, yeah, it's not, a, it's not as pessimistic as I'm made out. Well, I, I think the other thing that you've emphasized that's really important is like a greater tolerance amongst researchers and reviewers and the people consuming the research for like messy results non-significant results or null results, right? This, this greater willingness to accept that the, yeah. this, a non-sexy, non, yeah. does not make the study worthless and is also valuable, right? And I think yeah. that is becoming more common where now it's acceptable to find null results. You still have, of course, and it'll never get to the point where people are happy to get negative results for their theory. It's just not gonna happen like that. It doesn't even happen in the hard, sciences with, you know, people who have very, very lots of things riding on the calculations that they make, but it's not the way our psychology is, but it can be the way that our scientific standards are. Hmm. And, you know, we keep referencing open science. We'll probably cover them on later episodes in more detail, what kind of things can be involved there. But yeah. I, I see well, lots of reasons to be optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. And in fact, this is something I'm trying to speak about more and more with students and, and early career researchers. I mean, just in a very superficial way, the result you want is not always a significant result. Just to give you an example, Chris, we recently did an analysis um, because in Western Australia, there are very few pokey machines or slot machines. And in other states in Australia, there, there are, right? Everything else about those places is pretty much the same. So mm -hmm. it sort of forms like a natural experiment. All the other forms of gambling are available. There's this one that's been um, removed or made less available via regulation. So what we can do is create a model and see if we can attribute the, the lower rates of gambling problems in Western Australia to the lack of access to that particular gambling form, right? So as part of that analysis, we had a model of what's the likelihood of a person having gambling problems given their participation in a wide range of different forms. Now we wanted. I mean, you know, wanted in <laughs> scare quotes. Yeah. It's su it suited us, according to our theory, conditional on participation. We wouldn't expect there to be a difference between those two states. Okay. Right? Conditional on participation. So if there had been a significant difference between the, uh, the states with respect to conditional participation, so one of those covariates, then that would have been disappointing for us because we didn't have a good explanation for that. Like, remember, our theory assumed that it was lack of access, right? Lack of participation. That led to that difference. So, I mean, look, that's just a very superficial example, but for all social scientists who may not be super experienced with statistics, 
the lesson from that is that what matters is your model. What matters is the formal structure that you're using to describe a phenomenon. And a parsimonious structure, one that involves less degrees of freedom, that is less relationships between things, is actually a good thing, right? It, it makes, makes the model more parsimonious. So like even in very superficial ways, this is getting to my point, <laughs> I guess educating researchers that you can be designing your studies and thinking about your analyses, not in terms of trying to find a significant result, which is basically just describing a difference or a, a relationship, but rather to try to find a parsimonious description of the phenomena that you're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. I sign on to, to all such endeavors. Like in many respects, we are preaching to a known choir here, but I think it's good for people to hear about possible solutions and like why it is that, for example, when we talk about things that we are kind of harking on about, you know, approaching research objectively and stuff. There's another moral to this story, which is related to the gurus and so on, and just people doing their own research on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that one thing to learn from this is that evaluating the validity or how much credence to give to a result that's reported in a study in the academic literature is not straightforward. You certainly cannot get it from the abstract. If you do not have a solid grounding in so many methodological issues and the topic area at hand, then probably your chances of making an independent judgment of that particular paper are relatively low. I'm not saying don't attempt it, by all means, get involved, but just have an appropriate level of confidence in one's own abilities. Because one of the yeah. things we see with the gurus and their followers is they massively overestimate their own abilities. And also they make relatively little effort to actually take a particular result and put it in the context of the entire research field, let, let alone what you were describing, Chris, which is actually to take into account the actual, the, the rigor evidence in that study and all the rest. So the point I'm making is not give up, it's too hard or whatever. My point is, is just that it's difficult. It takes training, it takes experience, and it takes an awful lot of time such that even though me, professor of statistics, many people say I'm clever. I, I, <laughs> my mom says I'm handsome. My mom says I'm very clever. I don't try to do it a lot of the time because I know it's beyond me without investing like six months of my life, right? I rather, I actually do put some trust into other relevant people, people with credentials, people who do have experts. the necessary backgrounds, experts and so on. And, you know, you'd never give complete trust. The gurus like to just, you know, make it a binary kind of, oh, so you blindly trust, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not that. It's about recognizing your own limitations to undertake this kind of thing and giving an appropriate level of trust to people who have put the decades of work yeah. in. Yeah. That's like, you know, you, you learn as well when you start doing this kind of thing that like, Meta-analyses seem like the solution initially, like because they, these are studies where they collect together lots of studies and look for overall patterns. And then if there's bad studies, it can be weeded out from the overall uh, effect. But then you quickly realize that it doesn't work if there's things like publication bias where it's sensitive to find positive results. And also people can exercise researcher degrees of freedom in what studies they include and whatnot. And we've seen this in the meta-analyses of ivermectin studies. and Again, there, you know, it's a cautionary tale, but the people who understand methodological critiques and are expert at detecting, you know, issues in research 
they looked at the ivermectin studies. This was not their area of expertise, right? Actually, a lot of them were primarily psychology trained people, uh, trained people. And they, they noted, oh, there's warning signs here, right? There's warning signs in the data. There's warning signs in the way the studies are reported and so on. There's a warning yep. sign that the table being used is a default Excel table with the label still visible, <laughs> right? These sound like stupid things, but they matter because they're a sign mm. that there's something wrong here. And uh, when you try to present that to people, they regard it as, oh, you know, you're just trying to, you are exercising your degrees of freedom to dismiss studies that you don't like. And, and it, it can be that, but can also be that you actually are able to correctly identify good quality and low quality studies. And so there are instances, as you say, where sort of generalist knowledge, like in the case, in that case, psychologists applying sort of basic statistical epidemiological principles to a different area. There is overlap between disciplines and there are ways in which a generalist can contribute and provide a helpful critique. And there are ways in which, you know, we, it's we a, can't. Well, it's, like, it's just don't, specifically don't in the area to, of yeah, methodology, of, right? That's, yeah. that's all I want to say is methodologists yeah. can go across boundaries to a certain extent, but uh, yeah. when they're talking about methodology, but they don't yeah. know about the genetic data or the, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So just be very wary of the people that claim to be this polymath who's can, can figure out everything in an afternoon and is now qualified. You know, that's different from what, what Chris was just saying before. Yeah. yeah. And it, so to take it back to this paper to finish off. So the nice thing about this paper, we're talking about the last paper with Abelson was readable. This is a readable paper, a bit more technical. But they have this nice part when they get to the discussion where they preempt criticisms. They have a section called criticisms not far enough or too far. And they're taking these kind of different positions that people might critique them for. And then they have a section called non-solutions in which they discuss alternatives that people might suggest and why they don't find them convincing, even if they're useful things, right? They want to say these on their own are not a solution to the researcher degrees of freedom issue. Things like using Bayesian statistics, which incorporates prior probability. Now, that is potentially part of a solution, but the issue is that you have to assign prior probability in Bayesian statistics. So there is another degree of freedom that you can insert your preference on, right? And, and there's other things that they highlight, but I just like this paper, again, because it's readable. It presents an argument, identifies a problem, gives solutions, and it addresses nuances, right? Here's some other solutions that we think are relevant, but maybe not the answer. And it's short. It's like the paper in total is like six pages or so, although it's double line, uh, double column. So it's actually double that. But yeah, it's it's a really, I love this paper. So, and, and rereading that reminded me of why I think it's such a good paper. So there we go, yeah. Matt. Unless you, uh, what about you? Concluding remarks or overall thoughts? It's a good paper. And the lesson to be taken from it is that there's just a, a variety of pragmatic things, some simple, some a bit more complicated, some more difficult than others. There's just a variety of practical things we can do. This is a problem. It's kind of partly technical, partly sociological. It's never going to be perfect. The world isn't going to be perfect. The practice of science is not going to be perfect. And, you know, it doesn't have to be. It just has to be pretty good. You know, pretty, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a very good point, though, is that like, in some sense, this combines 
rigorous scientific objectivity kind of, you need to be methodologically cautious, you need to pre-register studies and so on, along with the acknowledgement that researchers are people and they exercise choices. And we have to factor that in when analyzing results and when contending with scientific data. So there is something to be said for the postmodern approach to emphasize science as a sociological or situated thing constructed by imperfect people. And it's a good illustration that you can take those insights and apply them in a practical, positive way, rather than just a deconstructive, useless jibber jabber way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm totally on board with the critiques on the sociology of science, but I think a lot of them are focused on these political things and gender and, you know, whatever, imperialism, whatever, when actually the problems are like the stuff we talked about right here. There's no imperialism required. It's just a bunch of people being fallible yeah. people, you know. The other final point too is that exploratory science is okay too. You know, like, yeah. you know, a, you lot of, a lot of this is, say it to is. say it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just have to say it's exploratory, and just be clear about what it is you're doing. Um, it all doesn't have to be this kind of oh, we specify these hypotheses and advances, blah blah blah. You you can set it up such that you have heaps of degrees of freedom, as long as you correct for that to the extent that you can statistically, and as long as they're made totally transparent. So, um, so yeah, like I think everything's going to be fine. We're going to, we're going to implement all of these recommendations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Don't read Stuart and... Ritchie's book about people dying from transplants that shouldn't be done and all that kind of thing. No, it's just, it's okay. It's, it's all right. It was, right. A, it was a bit of a speed bump, bit of a blip. Don't worry. <laughs> well, that's our, that's our second paper done. So for all you who have reached the end, thank you for uh, sticking around. And do you know the next paper, Matt, or do we? Uh, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I can say that it's going to be super cool and it's going to be about iterated prisoner's dilemma, which is a fun little curious thing in computer science, but has wonderful applications to game theory and understanding society. It's wonderful. That's it. Wow. We've given them, I look forward to learning about it myself <laughs> after that introduction. <laughs> but, um, so if you thought this was dry, that's going to be yeah, juicy. Just you weird. It's going to get <laughs> even more. But yeah, so that's it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.